Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Welcome to the Collider.com podcast. I'm Collider.com senior editor Matt Goldberg, and with me today I'm joined by managing editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. And senior editor Haley Fouch. Hello. Today we'll be talking about the Alien franchise. We asked y'all to vote on a film that's currently streaming on HBO Max. You all, uh, Alien barely beat out Batman, so uh, we're going to talk about Alien, but we're also going to talk a little bit about the franchise, the sequels and the prequels. And, uh, and then we're going to finish up uh, talking about a new film, uh, The Vast of Night. There will be no spoilers, so don't worry if you haven't seen The Vast of Night yet. But it's currently on Amazon uh, Prime Video, and so we wanted to talk a little bit about that movie. And then we'll finish up with Recently Watched. So that's the show. Um, and, but I'm, I'm excited to talk about Alien. I actually I saw the film on the big screen last year for its 40th anniversary uh, and it obviously it holds up wonderfully. Um, it's just it. And I'm, I'm kind of amazed that it does hold up because it's it's a very simple premise, which is there's an alien and it picks off all these crew members. And it seems like, oh, how, what an easy and obvious premise. And yet in 1979, it was pretty revolutionary, even though it's kind of just a haunted house in space. It's a genius idea that was executed perfectly. Um, Haley, I know you're a big fan of, of the alien movies. Do you want to talk a little bit about uh, your alien love? <laughs> sure. Um, what's weird about this franchise in particular is I, I can't remember at all when it started. I would assume somewhere with my dad, I snuck in and saw part of it because I definitely was not allowed to watch movies this level of rated R. But uh, it, it's just, I think, more one of those franchises that's been there your whole life and the older you get the more you start to appreciate it and uh, I think I had the same journey that from my understanding many people do which is that when you're young you super duper love aliens and then you get a little bit older and you go back and you realize alien is just outrageously good and terrifying and it's slow though which I think perhaps the wee children uh, like myself are not able to appreciate as much but I think you're really onto something with the simplicity of it, not just in the concept, but in the design of the ship, in the the core root of the characters, uh, the themes. It, well, the themes are the most complex, maybe, but this is a movie that was designed to be somewhat timeless. And by nature of leaning into the timelessness, much of it is very simple. Even the design of the ship, ship is gorgeous, but very simple. So you don't, Whereas if you look at something from like the mid nineties, you go, Oh no, that's not how space works. But this, you could still buy it. You're like, well, that was clearly cardboard, but I buy the design. You talking like, about space truckers? <laughs> oh yes. Specifically <laughs> that. Well, it's funny that, that these, these are essentially the cat, the, the crew of the Nostromo are space truckers. Like yeah. that, is, that is literally their profession, but everything about it is very utilitarian for the most part. Like, I mean, they have their, their nice quarters and their nice little sleeping pods, but for the most part, it's a, it's a working ship. That's like, and, and I, one of the things I really like about the film is that they are working class uh, characters. One of the things that uh, Yafet Kodo and Harry Dean Stanton are complaining about is that, you know, they're paid. You know, they're like, we're not getting paid enough. When do we get, do we get more money for this? And like, they're, they're concerned about an equitable wage, which I think is, is important because it ties into the large, you know, spoilers for alien, <laughs> how they will, how this company doesn't really view them as people, but views them as stock that can be used or discarded at their pleasure. Like that to me is the setup and payoff of, you know, when you have those characters complaining about, you know, what they're getting paid and their hours and all of that that payoff comes later when Ash is like crew expendable. And that is very uh, universal. It's, it's, it's universal and it's also extremely specifically timely. Mm. Um, but the idea of like people in power considering the working class disposable has been relevant since Shakespeare and probably will forever. It's fun times all around. Yeah, the xenomorphs don't get get you. The Wayland Yutani Corporation will. No. 
Well, it, would it surprise you guys to learn that I saw aliens before I saw Alien? Nope. That's on. <laughs> <laughs> so, I was a kid, and I was like, well, Aliens is the new, is a newer one. Um, I don't remember when I saw Alien 3. But it, like upon this most recent rewatch, the thing that struck me was just like the vastness of space and the terror of being alone. So like that opening shot of the ship, and like this came out, was it two years after Star Wars? Yeah. Um, and like it's very similar shot construction with the um, the ship like coming in, you know, low hanging over the the camera. Um, but the ship is huge and space is huge, but there's not like a bunch of other ships around. It's just them. And the ship is massive. And it's just this crew of like, what, six or seven yeah. individuals. And so that I think, you know. And watching it again, like there, I think it's the first six or seven minutes. There's absolutely no dialogue. There's no talking. It's just Ridley Scott showing you some rooms on the ship. And it's, you know, it's setting the space. It's setting the geography to of the kind of like chases to come. And you're kind of being ingrained in this world. Um, and then obviously the production design, which is incredible of this film, of uh, it feels unlike, very unlike Star Wars. Um, and it's kind of alluring and kind of lulls you in. But again, this sense of being alone, like all those shots are just the empty ship. And then you finally get to the crew and it's very small. Um, so again, setting up this idea that it, there's this massive ship when this alien is on board, it could be anywhere. Um, this kind of haunted house story within, um, you know, kind of like a sci-fi story. But I do agree. I think those themes of of the corporation making the working class expendable is something that still resonates. And, you know, the knock on Alien is that it's pretty simplistic and it is fairly simplistic in its narrative construction. But I, I think those themes still resonate pretty deeply. And having Ripley as your you know final girl, um, I think, was a pretty smart decision. And I'm glad they talked Ridley Scott out of the original ending where the alien bit off Ripley's head and then spoke in Ripley's voice to Waylon Yutani and was like, we're headed back to Earth now. That's what really <laughs> wanted to do at the original ending of the movie. Oh, that Ridley. <laughs> but yeah, it's a scary movie. Spooky movie. And I also, I, you know, I, I think the simplicity, I don't think that that's a knock against the film. To me, when the film is this well made, that's sort of like saying like a sword is simplistic. I'm like, yeah, because it's just sharp metal. But <laughs> if you use it right, it's pretty impactful. So, you know, I mean, this film is is just very well tuned. But I think there that also when you call it simplistic, simplistic, it ignores the depth of just what it's talking about. Uh, I mean, there's you could write entire essays about you know fear of pregnancy and like. How how would we make men fear pregnancy? Well, we'd give them chest bursters and <laughs> go into that whole thing. But I, I think there's a lot going on with the film. But at, at its core, or not even at its core, you can always just enjoy it as just a really fun thrill ride. Like, it's a film that, like, there's some horror films that, like, they get under my skin and, like, I don't really enjoy them. Like, they're, like, I can accept that they're well-made and that they're scary. But I always, even though... Alien is scary. I have fun with it. Like, I'm not rooting for the Xenomorph, but I just have fun being in that world and going along for the ride. And especially how, um, especially the way that the film upends expectations. It's the kind of film that, like, oh, it's Tom Skerritt. Well, Tom Skerritt's the captain, and the captain is going to be the hero. And nope, (laughs) that's not going to happen. Yeah, and I love, uh, I do see the simplicity thing, but I also like that it loops in, like, a lot of, different types of horror into this one sci-fi and lots of different types of sci-fi you have the the fear of pregnancy and sexual assault as you mentioned you have you know the classism stuff which is always fun uh you have the ash is obviously terrifying in his own right there you can make a whole movie about an ai gone rogue right but that's just a b plot and it is that is maybe my like scariest scene in the movie is when he fully has his freak out and yeah again sorry alien spoilers um but i i like how it's all interlaced and there are like a lesser film would feel like it was speeding through all those things and not giving them enough time and space to really grow and come into something holistic but they all fit together and they just each scene stacks upon the next and somehow, as Adam mentioned, in doing all these things, 
it still has the time to be like a half hour of just showing us the ship first. I don't <laughs> understand how it works. It's like a miracle film, but it it's so effective. And I would be remiss to also not mention just the pure design of the alien itself, which is, of course, iconic and groundbreaking and a different reflection of like the terror of technology and biology all mixed up in one and they didn't even have to talk about it they were just like we have this design that will translate all of it i mean they didn't have to talk about it until the sequels but we'll get into that or the prequels or whatever you want to call them no uh, yeah I yeah i oh, go ahead adam yeah. well i was gonna say it, it's interesting i recently watched uh joe johnston's the wolfman um it's really just like an anonymous film um but the patience of this film as a horror film, I think, is something that's a virtue and it's something that a lot of horror films lack. And when I was watching The Wolfman, it was literally every 20 minutes there was an action sequence. And it opened with, you know, someone getting attacked by the Wolfman. And, like, Alien doesn't open with an attack scene. You don't even see the fully-fledged alien until, like, what, probably, like, 45, 50 minutes into the film. Uh, maybe an hour. I can't remember. Um, and before then, it's just like little creatures and not uh, super duper graphic. Um, but that patience is what like builds the tension. It's what kind of makes you nervous and, and scared. Um, you know, a film like The Witch, I think, is a very patient horror film. It's not trying to immediately grab you and immediately scare you, immediately, immediately terrify you. Uh, and, the, you know, it doesn't always have to be patience. I mean, Midsommar opens with uh, a truly terrifying sequence um but it, i don't know i feel like that's something that a lot of horror films lack and something when going back and watching this is like oh like that actually makes this a lot scarier rather than like giving people that adrenaline rush every 20 minutes right well i mean it, i mean imagine watching this in in the theater in 1979 when yeah. you don't really know much about the film the plot i mean that the tagline is in space no one can hear you scream like, but you don't know what's happening. Like, so imagine getting to the chest bursting scene and like losing your fucking mind. Yeah. Whereas like we all grew up and like I, the way I knew the chest bursting scene was from Spaceballs. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, ah, I understood that reference. So like that, like, but it, for that audience, like the way it slow plays you, it's a film that really latches on to the, in the, there's so much possibility in the unknown because of the space represents the unknown. And so when the alien like latches on to uh, John Hurt's, you know, helmet and like at that point, you're like, anything goes because you're like, no one knows how the alien works when they discover it has acid for blood. <laughs> no, one, no one's like, well, of course the alien has acid for blood. Aliens have acid for blood. Like that wasn't a thing in 1979. And so I didn't like, like that it, it, it pushes, it's able to keep pushing forward in upending your expectations and really using the fact that you don't know what's going to happen. But I admire the fact that even if you went into Alien knowing all of the plot points, it's so well-directed and well-made that it still grabs you. Yes. I would, and there's an interesting contrast to sort of the structure we just talked about. You know, the movie Underwater came out last year and it was very clearly riffing on Alien. And I'm, I under... I enjoyed Underwater, but did you guys see it? I did. It starts with the action, right? There's no lead up. The opening scene yeah. is chaos from the get-go. So as much as it was riffing on Alien throughout, and I, I did enjoy what it, it was doing there, it did not display that patience. And I think that really harms the film because my biggest criticism of Underwater is the whole movie. I'm like, I don't, who is this? Right. Who are they're these people? What are their what? lives like? What, yeah, exactly. what, what has happened here? Um, so it's it it's a powerful move. And I agree that I wish more horror had the patience, but I do think that as you guys mentioned, even Midsummer starts with a really punchy scene, but then it requires a lot of patience to get to the next punchy scene, right? I think there is this movement back towards more patient horror right now that I'm very much enjoying. Yes. It, it, I don't know, it makes for a far more memorable experience. And I mean, horror is one of the, if you look at the, the kinds of films that studios are making, they're making a lot of horror movies because they can be done, done cheaply. But I also think because audiences are a little more forgiving, like I think some audience members just go and they're like, you know, if I jumped out of my seat two or three times, then that was fine. Like it doesn't matter if it was a good movie or if it was memorable, 
if it jumped out of my seat, that was fine. If the nun makes you jump out of your seat a few times, it's worth $200 million. But I think genuinely that's what people are going yeah. for. Like I talk to people and they're like, the yeah, they're like, I just want to see something that scares me. You know, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be lasting or memorable. And I think there's room for that. But I also think, I mean, you think about The Conjuring, which is the best of both worlds. Like that film, I think, is super scary. It really gets your adrenaline jumping, but it's also a pretty calm and patient um, and kind of throwback horror film and uh, using practical effects and stuff like that. Um, I think Mike Flanagan is doing a lot of, of stuff like that as well, where he's delivering the kind of the best of both worlds. But I don't know. I find that interesting because there, there aren't many other genres like at a comedy, like people aren't going to see a comedy and they're like, oh, if I laughed once, it's okay. Or if I laughed twice, it's fine. Like they seem pretty pissed off if they didn't laugh a lot and feel like it was worthwhile. But horror is just this kind of weird genre where it's like, doesn't really matter if the movie's good or not. If I get that adrenaline burst, then yeah. And yet, like money well spent. Although I feel like, you know, people can get way more pissed off at horror in a way that they won't at a, at a comedy. Like I was like, if we have an article on the site uh, where um, Drew Taylor went through all the films that have gotten an F cinema score rating and cinema score is basically how people feel about a film compared to how it's marketed. And I can't think of any comedies really that are on the list. I think that comedies kind of get a pass in a way that like, like this year, the turning, I think got an F and I think there's a few other horror films that are like, people are like, no, thank you. <laughs> yeah. I guess. <laughs> well, I believe... oh, no, I was going to ask you, Haley, I haven't seen the turning or uh, what's the other one. The one where like the ending of the movie is like to find out the ending. The, de- the devil's. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Infamous. The, the, the devil's baby, Mar- Rosemary's baby ripoff. I don't remember what it's called, but yeah. Uh, that wasn't, both of those, if I'm correct, they have like an ending that's directly like a middle finger to the audience. Ah, uh, okay. Um, because I think the turning, if I remember correctly, especially since it's based on like one of the most iconic horror stories of all time, people have some expectations, and I think it plays with it pretty aggressively, not just changing from the novel, but also like. Uh, how what's the right way to say this like what you've the story you think you've been understanding in the movie so far it kind of is like eh, not really <laughs> and nobody likes that like a bunch of angry henry james fans just marching out of the theater <laughs> like, this is not the turn of the screw how dare you <laughs> i would like to see it i i no, I wouldn't. I don't want any more angry fan bases, I'll be honest. Um, angry fan bases, but only for 18th century literature. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Well, I got a little bit, like, super... I love the Haunting of Hill House series, but there are some choices in there where I felt myself becoming that person a little bit. Like, um, you did what to Miss Jackson? Absolutely not. <laughs> yeah, wait until people see Shirley, which comes out this Friday, which is... Uh... Josephine Decker, the filmmaker who made Madeline's Madeline, like kind of a bi- it's essentially like a fictionalized account of like these two people go and live with Shirley Jackson, her husband, and Shirley Jackson, her husband, just fuck with them the whole time. But it's oh. just like a descent into madness. I don't think any of it is based, in fact, beyond just the idea that Shirley Jackson was kind of crazy. I, to be a little more specific, the Haunting of Hill House thing for me was like basically that they made her the most boring character. It's like the son takes on the role of being Shirley Jackson and takes yeah. her words and then changes the ending quote to be like actually things are fine mm. all right <laughs> i struggle but this is a side rant where i was like i'll prove you wrong there are 18th century literature <laughs> <laughs> um what i was going to say about comedies though or not quite about that i do think we give them more leeway i think horror is really super nitpicked and i think that this difference in the like, I'm okay with just having a little jump scare versus wanting something more out of it. That kind of divide is also why we see so much debate about what is horror and what isn't horror and this contentious like conversation around elevated horror. <laughs> um, I think that's part of why nobody like agrees on the genre label. I've had people say that they don't think Alien is horror. And I'm like, that's a really crazy thing to say, in my opinion. <laughs> Yeah, like Get Out, because Get Out isn't filled with jump scares, but is still scary. Is it technically horror? Which is a dumb argument to have. It's also, about 
a really scary thing that is also yeah. very real. Yeah. And you don't have that argument about like, like if a comedy isn't funny, people aren't like, well, it's not a comedy. You're just like, no, it's an unfunny comedy. Right. I also <laughs> pause it. Watson is, is a cares? drama. <laughs> <laughs> it's just an ineffective one. Yeah. But, you know, it's interesting, you know, going back to, you know, we were talking about adaptations, but I think it, it, the fact that Alien is also an original screenplay gives it that another oomph, another way to surprise the audience. And it's, kind of, again, it's kind of, I don't want to say a shame, because I do think horror, because of its price point, is able to break in at a point that, so, like, The Witch isn't adapted off of anything, and you get to make The Witch. But it goes to, like, an indie studio rather than, like, a big studio is sort of, like, well, we'll maybe make the conjuring, but if the conjuring is a hit, everything is now like everything is now a conjuring movie. So <laughs> Warner Brothers makes horror films, but they're all related to the conjuring. Here's Annabelle. Here's the nun. Here's some other guy that's referenced. It's all connected. It's it's weird that that, that there's a conjuring cinematic universe, but there we are. I will give you a counterpoint to that. I do think that 20th Century Fox uh with Specifically, A Cure for Wellness and Red Sparrow, which I think you could somewhat qualify Red Sparrow as something of a horror film, but definitely not the kind of film that people were expecting. Um, but those were original ideas. Those were incredibly bold. No one saw them. And That's they true. Didn't yeah, no, there's also the audience itself it deserves some sort of culpability there because ticket prices are expensive. Time is expensive. There's a lot more things vying for your attention. Are you really going to take a gamble on The Cure for Wellness? when there are other things when you could be like oh but there's another fast and furious movie and i like those so that'll that'll get my money instead i think I a lot about, about your wellness <laughs> <laughs> that's on my shame list i'm gonna fix that this weekend I still it's don't... uh i'll be curious to see what you think because it's uh it's a weird one and gore verbinski is like yeah sure two hours 45 minutes just spend ah, it's amazing on. that it exists it it's so amazing. expensive too it's so it's so expensive it's so weird I'm I'm a fan. We're both Adam and I are both fans of Cure for Wellness. I'll check it out. I don't uh fucks around with Dane DeHaan, if I'm being honest. That's kind of my why I haven't got to it yet. I and I get that. I think he works well for Cure for Wellness because he's so slimy. <laughs> he just <laughs> always looks like sweaty and gaunt and like you're like, Yeah, I hope I hope some bad things happen to you here. <laughs> yeah. It worked to his advantage. Yeah. He's not the, the romantic lead. I'll put it Correct. that way. Yeah. No. What was the one where they tried to do that? The space movie? The worst cast space movie of all time? Oh my gosh, why can't I remember the name? Valerian. With the like the oh, yeah. duo of no chemistry whatsoever. Oh man. Valerian's such a weird film. Oof. Yeah. Savage casting. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway, to Matt's point a little bit, I mean, Paramount kind of had that a double whammy as well when they did they some for some reason <laughs> greenlit Mother and Annihilation with a ton of money, and they hobbled <laughs> Annihilation's release a little bit, but neither of them did very well. And and uh, I mean, they seem to do very well in streaming, but nobody was willing to go pay for that in a theater. I still can't believe Annihilation is like a major studio film, and oh, that they were like, yeah, no, this is good, which they weren't. They were like, Netflix, please take this from us, or Hulu, or whoever. I don't know how it happened, though, where he was like, the third act will be like movement performance art. And they were like, yeah, make that. Let's give that a lot of money. At one point, you know, Tessa Thompson's going to kind of become a tree. So <laughs> kind of. that's what the people want. I'm giving the people what they want. Anyway. I'm so grateful. I love that movie. Oh, and I think it, the movie's great. It is the type of sci-fi, I think, that taps into like, several layers of themes and existential but also visceral the way that alien does that fires on all those levels and in a movie much like alien that the audience has never really seen before and has no idea what to expect hey Haley, you're you're our horror expert on this episode so i wanted to ask you a question since we're kind of talking about different kinds of horror it seems like and, and please correct me if i'm wrong that like a horror film that's sort of easy to grasp like stuff in the conjuring universe that that can do very well at the box office. But then if you make something like the Suspiria remake, people are like, I don't know what that is. I don't want any part of that. (laughs) Please leave me alone. Like, I mean, and and I would say like a film like Midsommar Midsommar does well relative to its cost. And like, I think for A24, it was a hit. 
But like making $24 million for A24 is not the same as making like $150 million for the third Annabelle movie. That definitely is. So when I look at horror, like it tends to be kind of cyclical in that we'll have these bursts of really great original films that kind of take off. And and when you say take off, most of them do tend to be on that like good for A24 level. But then you'll have something like Get Out, which is a bona fide original sensation, right? Mm-hmm. And so we have these years that are really good and glorious and creative. Uh, and then you have everyone trying to copy those ideas and finding that they make less and less money, which is when the safer movies tend to come up. And then you end up with like the late 80s, early 90s, you know, like Friday the 13th, 94, um, that kind of wave. But I do think that it's easier, certainly, to sell marketable movies with things that people like immediately understand. They understand a killer doll. That doesn't mean every killer doll movie is going to do great, but it's easy to package. Whereas Get Out was so phenomenal because how do you package the idea that the villain is racism, right? That's very tricky and a a really miraculous thing that kind of happened. Um, So it does happen, but I guess. I, I think that we are now headed into maybe a less fun part of the wave is where I was going with that. I think we're we're seeing a lot more of what happened in the last five years being cycled back towards us in safer movies. But well, nobody knows what's going to work because Child's Play didn't break the bank, you know? Yeah. Well, and I wanted to start to bring that back to our main topic. It feels like Alien is very much, you know, it, it's now a big franchise and yet it's a franchise that, not that that 20th century fox i think had trouble working with when i mean you had aliens and aliens i think is just a straight action film like i mean it has a couple of horror elements but i just i've always considered it just it's an action movie um and we'll come back to alien 3 and alien resurrection but to talk about the relaunch with prometheus and alien covenant that felt like a very weird balancing act to me because and maybe i mean you guys correct me if i'm wrong watching those films it feels like Ridley Scott is like, I want to make a movie about David. That's the character I care about. That's the character who's interesting. I find his journey to be very disturbing and horrific. And 20th Century Fox is like, that's great. It has to be an alien movie. (laughs) And so all the alien stuff like from Prometheus and especially Alien Covenant kind of grates on me a bit because it's not really like it's like the alien stuff feels grafted on to just this other story that I think is is strong enough on its own. Like, I think the David stuff is works great. It's just all the alien stuff kind of gets under my skin. So I think it was actually the reverse of that. So oh. from my understanding, uh, Ridley Scott tried to get whatever his name is, the guy who directed 47 Ronin to direct. Sure. Um, the idea was he was going to do an alien prequel. Um, and Fox was like, absolutely not. Uh, not unless you're directing. And so Ridley Scott signed on, and John Spates wrote the screenplay. And that screenplay was the origin of the facehuggers, the origin of the eggs, the origin of the xenomorph, and very closely tied into Alien. And I guess they were kind of wavering on like what to do with that. And so they had Damon Lindelof read the script. Damon Lindelof uh, says he went in and just gave them a very honest answer, which was like, this script is interesting. The things I don't find interesting of it in it are the facehuggers, the eggs, the xenomorphs. I'm more interested in these themes of like creation and like where did we come from and who are like what if you went to meet your maker and you had an android who was traveling with his makers. Like these humans are trying to find out where they came from. Meanwhile, David is with his creators. And so what that what that conflict is. And so then really Scott was like, yes, that. And so they peeled back. They pulled back on the facehugger stuff and the egg stuff. So I think that's where there, there's that kind of weird disconnect. And then, I don't know, I like Prometheus. I don't think it did as well as Fox wanted it to. And so Alien Covenant is like, sorry, here's some more alien stuff, but also going to get super fucking weird with the David stuff too. So, you know, enjoy. I think an Alien Covenant is more where you see what Matt was talking about, which is that, uh, Ridley Scott had decided he was more interested in the David stuff. Um, and I think he spoke about this like in interviews where he was like, I was wrong. People just want to see the same old shit. Like, <laughs> yeah. so we're putting more aliens in it. Um, and that one's interesting. Cause I, I, I like both of those movies. Um, 
with the very open recognition that they're flawed and messy and kind of goofy. But um, they, I think they reflect so many different flaws, like flaws in the system of making films and having too many hands in one soup. And I also think they reflect some of uh, Ridley Scott's most interesting flaws as filmmakers. And you see like this, this desire to achieve this sort of dream state of horror in these movies that works really well in the original Alien. Like there's no reason uh, Harry Dean Stanton should be in a room that's dripping water in a spaceship. Legit doesn't make any sense. Like nothing about that works, but it's this dream logic type horror that totally plays because you're in the movie. That dream logic does not work in those prequel films. <laughs> like the the running away from the spaceship and the making all of the bad choices. I can almost justify them as a nightmare logic. Like in your nightmares, you consistently do the wrong thing, but that's just because I enjoy them and I want to try to like validate some of that experience. Yeah, there's like that kind of push and pull in the in the prequels about how well, we're going to explain things. So we're going to explain where we came from. And we're also going to explain like where the aliens came from. And like, we're going to explain how like there's new monsters, like there's spore aliens that get into your bloodstream. But like, if you, the more you start explaining something, the less you're able to sort of lean onto that nightmare dream logic. I mean, in the first alien, they don't really, like everything they learn about the alien, we learn about the alien. Like they don't just come into it being like, well, of course they have acid blood. Like they, they try to get it off and then they discover it has acid blood. Like that's, so, but really like the film, because it is so simple and straightforward, it sort of shuts out, it, it purposely shuts away information, which makes it scarier because you're with the characters. You don't really understand the xenomorph. Um, you don't know how to beat it. You don't understand where it's coming from. You don't know anything and you're trapped in space. And, but when you get to the, when you get to Prometheus, it's like, here's a group of scientists. And then when you get to Alien Covenant, it's like, you're colonists, leaders, and like also scientists, but also military. I, I don't really know what the, who, the how the Alien Covenant crew works, but again, like a strength of Alien is like they're space truckers. Like that's it. They're hauling freight. It's very simple. But the I don't know. There's just the there. You're you, you have the perfect word, Haley. It's messy. They're very messy prequels, and I get that some people love that mess. For me, I find them a little irksome. It's I so watch. Oh, go ahead. Just real quick on Covenant. We were, I went to the set visit for that, which was phenomenal. Like the coolest thing I've ever done in my life. No matter how you feel about the movie, dude builds a set. The actors put so much into those characters. They had backstories. We talked to each actor for 30 to 40 minutes and they told us all about the depth of these characters and the work they had done. So imagine my surprise when I see the movie and Amy Simons is in it for like three seconds before going boom. It was the most surreal thing we learned about like Carmen Ijogo's character and Billy Crudup's marriage and the complications in that marriage because she was a science person and he was a person of faith. What? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I was going to say, I rewatched Alien Covenant recently, and you get to like Billy Crudup talking about how he's a Christian, and I'm like, oh, that's a fascinating idea. And then it's like, never mind, because we got to get to all this action stuff. Like, it does feel like Ridley has these ideas that he wants to get in there. And I think Damon Lindelof has been pretty frank about the process of working with Ridley is that he'll sit there and he just sketches, and he sketches the giant uh, ship that's going to roll. And he was like, and when Ridley tells you it's going to roll straight forward, because that's what he wants it to look like, you write that it rolls straight forward, <laughs> even though Charlie's there and could go left or right and be totally fine. Um, but he's a very visual, I think, filmmaker when he's coming up with the stories. And I liked that idea of, of like, a, it would have been fascinating to see Billy Crudup struggling as a Christian with like, oh, there's, you know, this entire race. I mean, I don't know if you guys read those interviews with really Scott after Prometheus came out where he just like laid it all out of like what his plan was and what the entire story was for the franchise where so essentially the idea in Prometheus is that they found these market like Prometheus opens with the prologue of the engineer drinking the goo juice and disintegrating and that creates life on earth um and then Numi Rapas and uh poor man's Tom Hardy find cave drawings and are like, oh, like this points to this planet. And so then they can go to the planet of, that they think is of the engineers. So the idea 
Ridley said all of this before he made Alien Covenant, and I think this was supposed to be what the next sequel was, was that you found out that the engineers created human life, and it seemed like the humans were getting a little out of control, so they sent down an emissary to like kind of make peace and see if things would go okay. That emissary was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was an engineer, and he said they sent down an emissary and they crucified him. And so that was the idea, was that – and then so the engineers got vengeful, and that planet was – that they go to in Prometheus was all their weapons. And so the idea was that they were going to bomb the shit out of Earth and kill all of humanity, um, which is an interesting idea. I wish there was some of that in. I want to be some... in the room with the Fox executive where it's really got is like, so Jesus comes down. <laughs> and they're like, no, you can't do that. <laughs> well, but I, what I think, and Matt, you said it that like, Ridley's more interested in the story of David, which I am as well. And I really wish we could have gotten an Alien Covenant sequel because the most fascinating part of Alien Covenant is the David story. It is, again, this idea that he was created, he immediately knows who his creator is. And he immediately understands, I think in that prologue to Alien Covenant with Guy Pierce is is very interesting, um, where it's clear that David immediately understands that he is superior to his creator, and yet is his creator's subservient is his assistant. And so David grows to become resentful and vengeful against the humans, but then also by, you know, the transitive property, the engineers as well. So that's why he just like bombs and kills all of the engineers when he goes to their home world. So I was curious as like this idea of David just going nuts and just creating biological weapons and then where he was going to go with that. I don't know how, cause really always said that his idea was that it like, after Alien Covenant would be one more film that would like come in the back way towards Alien and that would explain because it was still never explained like how did that jo- it, like that space jockey get there for the first Alien because um, presumably or presumably not all the engineers were killed because there still has to be an engineer that goes in that ship to the original place in Alien and I sound crazy. But this is the plot of the Alien prequels. (laughs) You sound like an excellent scholar of crazy people. (laughs) (laughs) I just find it so much more fascinating than Alien 3 and Alien 4 and Alien vs. Predator, which are just slasher movies. Like, they turn, they devolve into, well, maybe not Alien Resurrection, but, like, kind of taking that formula of slasher movies where it's like, all right, well, we have the thing and we have the hero and just like create a new scenario and just go again, have them go up against each other again. But here's the thing, and this is where I'm going to kind of swoop in with my hot take. I feel that the strongest asset of any alien film is Ripley. And I feel like, which is, I don't really give a shit about xenomorphs. And I feel like, again, that's why David is interesting. Like it has to be a character, but like this reliance on xenomorphs are here. Like who, who cares? And so, yeah, like alien three and, and alien resurrection kind of change things up a bit, but not radically. But I feel like it's Ripley who holds that thing together, who holds it all together. And I feel obviously part of that is just Sigourney Weaver being a great actress. But I feel like like Alien 3 doesn't really work for me, but I feel it has interesting things going on. It, it's a film that it's kind of a miracle it even exists, given its notoriously troubled production. I mean, the documentary about its making is called Wreckage and Rage, <laughs> you know? But I mean, I kind of like some of its bold strokes, like like killing off Newt and Hicks at the beginning. Um, I will say that like putting her on a planet full of bald white men is makes it hard to follow the story. I can't tell any of them apart. <laughs> I, I have no idea who's who on that plant on the prison it's planet. It's a real Dunkirk situation. I was trying <laughs> to like uh, go through and figure out who all the actors were playing the supporting characters in Alien 3 and it's it's hopeless you can look through IMDB and like zoom in on their faces and you're like yeah I don't know the same yeah. person yeah and like and and, and especially because all of them exec- ex- exist to basically be killed off so you don't even really grow that attached to them but there they are like Alien 3 has issues I'm kind of like a, a weird defender of Alien Resurrection I think it ha- makes some very dumb choices along the way like I hate the scene where Michael Wincott's like, I got to get that gun. <laughs> it's like, no, you don't. You don't need to go down that hallway. There's no good reason. But it also has really amazing scenes where you have like clone Ripley wandering into like a room full of her failed clone versions. That's really unnerving and really impactful. And I think, you know, Alien Resurrection, again, there's some good ideas in there about like, what if Ripley was now basically bonded with the thing that she hated the most? And like, what does that mean for that character? I don't think all of it works, but I think 
Alien Resurrection is kind of maligned in a way that I don't think it necessarily deserves. I agree completely. I actually, despite how much I love the first two movies, didn't watch Alien Resurrection for a long period of my life just because the word around it was so terrible. I think I was in uh, college when I finally watched it for the first time, and I was shocked that I just had a great old time with it. It is goofy at times, and not everything works, but I think it's a really fun movie. I do confess I enjoy every single Alien film and probably will that's ever made just because I love it so much. But that one in particular, I was shocked by the the bad word of mouth. When I finally saw Alien 3, I got it because it does make that bold killing stroke right out of the gate. And I can see how that would just like, nope, that you can't recover from that for some people. Um, but that movie's freaking fun. How do you hate that movie? Like you can have problems with it, but how do you hate something that gleefully bizarre yeah it's a very long time since i've seen it yeah <laughs> i do not uh, remember that movie very much other I than like winding a ride is a robot yeah like i would say like give alien resurrection a shot like alien resurrection like is sort of just treated like really badly and i would say like there are like I feel like it's kind of treated on the same level as something like Alien versus Predator, but like Alien versus Predator is garbage. Like there should not be a PG-13 Alien movie. That's just ridiculous. But Alien Resurrection has like, it's not a perfect film, but it has things working in it. And I think it works because Ripley. And I think that's something that Alien films need is you need some character. You need some, whether it's Ripley or if it's David, you need someone who wants something. Because at, at the end of the day, the aliens themselves, the xenomorphs, they're a great design, but they're not they don't want anything. They don't need anything. They don't have goals. They're just there to kill. And it's fun to watch them kill, but it can get kind of tedious, as I think is the case in Alien Covenant, when the aliens are just offing people, and it's like, all right, that's happening, and you just kind of go on with your day. But this time they come out of your back. Yeah, that <laughs> backburster. <laughs> Counterpoint is Michael Fassbender witnessing the ch- the alien come out of Billy Crudup's chest, and it just raises <laughs> its little hands at Billy Crudup. Michael Fassbender. But that's and that's fascinating because that is like like David has created life now. Like Mm -hmm. this is David's creation, and he's created a killing machine that's just like Papa after he (laughs) came out Billy Crudup's chest. But just like the dumb decisions in that movie, where Billy Crudup catches Michael Fassbender like basically like falling in love with the pale xenomorph, and then he shoots it, and David freaks out, and then. He's like, David, tell me what's going on. David's like, follow me into this dark basement. And Billy Crudup's like, okay. Okay. What was like the rewrite process like? Like there's like, was Numi Rapace ever supposed to be a part of that? Or were they like, no, no, he always, <laughs> he always screws over that character. Like, I don't know. I, I, want, I want to know more about the making of those. Weren't they supposed to have an adventure? Did I, yeah. did I misremember that? So his initial... We're, like, she takes his head and like, we're going on an adventure, buddy. Right. <laughs> that was that was the plan after, like, when Prometheus was coming out, when he talked about, you know, you know, oh, it's Jesus. Uh, he said the next movie would find uh, Elizabeth and David going to the homeworld of the engineers. Um, and along the way, I think because of the reaction of Prometheus, I'm sure Fox was like, you need more xenomorphs, whatever. And they ended up shooting that prologue that they released with... Elizabeth like rebuilding David on the ship and you know her singing Country Road and then him you know murdering her he put her in a hypersleep and then that's the last time you see her and then he bombs the shit out of the engineers homeworld so I would have been fascinated to see them land on the homeworld of the engineers and like see what goes on there which I think was really the original idea but that guy his mind moves a mile a minute he's like all right whatever we're gonna do this now like uh, Kevin Spacey fuck him we're gonna shoot new scenes in like two days and put it out (laughs) in the week (laughs) <laughs> very quickly and very seamlessly. It's like, I, yep, this fine. I, I will say the the lack of romanticism that Ridley Scott has about his profession is kind of his defining feature. Like he is very much about like a results oriented guy and who just moves on to the next thing. And it's kind of amazing that someone who's so unromantic about film is has made some genuinely great art. Because yeah. his treatment of it is like, well, that's the biz, and just kind of moves on to the next thing. Like Adam, like you told, like I didn't know that. Like you told me, like he doesn't do the editing; he just, yeah. just hands it off and goes about his day. 
Yeah, he said the reason he has so many director's cuts is that, like, you know, editing, like, he hands it off, that's his editor's job, and, like, he doesn't go in there too much and fiddle with it or whatever, and, like, they put, you know, the movie is put together under his supervision, and then after the fact, he'll go in and, like, change stuff, and that's where the director's cuts come from. I think, this has been a while since I read that quote, but I think that's that's what he said. That's also how you end up being a filmmaker with, like, 25 projects in development when you're 82. Like, he just doesn't (laughs) stop. Dude's a workhorse. It's it's crazy. Yeah, he just works nonstop. It's very, uh-huh. and he was very. He was on the Covenant set. Um, you guys have done enough visits to know that most of the time the directors do not have time for your shit, yeah. and especially directors of his caliber. But he he came over to talk to us, and we assumed it was one of those just hi, hello, how you doing, fuck off, I got work to do type things. Uh, but no, he was like there to interview us to the point where he was like, so does somebody have questions? Like he was very uh, humble, just here to get the job done. Like, I hear you guys need an interview. Let's chat. And then I got to get back to work. Like, dude's dude works. I don't know another filmmaker who could survive putting out Exodus Gods and Kings and like that happening. And then just like, oh, yeah, whatever. Like next, <laughs> like, it next doesn't work out anyway. I'm gonna go make the Martian. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. it's usually popular. <laughs> usually, I forgot about the Martian because I was thinking like the counselor and all the money in the world and that stuff. Yeah, he also made the Martian, which was like super successful. Yeah. So he's a he's an interesting chap. I'll put yeah. it out. But um, let, let me put this question to you guys: Would you want them to continue the Alien franchise? Or is it like, or should they leave well enough alone? In Disney's hands? (laughs) There's a a business reality that we're not acknowledging, but like, if we were in charge. Sure. I'll watch as many alien movies as they'll make, and uh, just selfishly, because I like them, even the bad ones. I hope there's a new one every few years till I'm dead, just because I like them. They make me happy. and I don't generally speaking get too hung up on how good they are. I just they make me happy. But in Disney's hands, realistically, nah, dog, no thank you. <laughs> Daisy <laughs> Ridley to, to lead Alien reboot yeah. as new as Ripley's daughter. Oh, remember when <laughs> everyone <bad> thought? <laughs> remember when everyone thought Catherine Waterson was playing Ripley's mom in Alien Covenant? Yeah, that'd be cool. It'll definitely be some weird kind of legacy sequel to Ripley. That'll be that'll be how Disney rolls with a new Alien, which is very. It it really is a small world after all when Disney is in charge. Everyone is related. Everything is connected. That being said, I will accept it if you build if they build an Astromo theme park. (laughs) (laughs) You too, and like then a guy dressed as a Xenomorph comes out and grabs you, and you go no. They okay. had a, uh, a Alien versus Predator maze at Halloween Horror Nights a few years ago. Um, it's by far the coolest one I've ever seen at any of the Horror Nights I've been to because they had not just people in the Alien and Predator suits. They had people puppeting Alien puppets that would like come out of the walls. It was unbelievable. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah, I don't have like a crazy attachment to the franchise. So like I'll watch more Alien movies if they make them. I mean... You know, Disney will probably like Pirates of the Caribbean it and try and make it like PG-13, get, you know, I don't know, John Lee Hancock to direct like an alien <laughs> reboot or something. <laughs> like, oh, you know, it's horror tinged, but it's more of an adventure story. Yeah, it's more of an adventure. <laughs> but I, personally, I am more interested in the like mythological aspects of the franchise that Ridley was exploring with Prometheus and Alien Covenant. And I don't think that's going to continue. So No, that's not going to happen. So. I, I think we will get more alien films. I, I would. I, I don't really need more if they want to yeah. make more. So be it. But the good news is that like they've made a bunch of them now, and Alien is still untouched in a way. Yeah. Like, like it's still a great film. You can still enjoy it. It hasn't been like tainted by other Alien movies. Well, and it's not even bothersome that like Alien Covenant is a prequel, and they have far like more advanced technology than they have in the first alien just because Haley, as you were saying like the dream logic like it doesn't those movies don't make a ton of sense in terms of what's happening or what's going on i do wish if they're gonna own everything i wish they'd be interesting about it like i'd love to see an r-rated deadpool versus alien movie why not you own it yeah like 
if you're gonna buy everything, do They've something. They've done that your- in comic books. I I have literally read Superman versus Aliens. Yeah. <laughs> so nice. Um, all right. Anything else to add on Alien, or should we move on to a brief discussion of the Vast of Nights? Do it. Let's do it. All right. So for those who don't know, Vast of Night is a indie film that came out to uh, Amazon this past Friday. You can watch it right now. It's only like 90 minutes. Um, and I'm not going to say too much about it because I think part of its appeal is the fact that like there's nothing to be known about it. It doesn't have big stars uh, and it. Um, the marketing has been very restrained. Um, but a, people, a lot of people who've seen it have really liked it, but I was more muted on it. But Adam, you saw it this weekend and really enjoyed it. I did. I will add the caveat that I am somewhat friendly with one of the co-writers. It is a it's a film made by an Oklahoma filmmaker and two Oklahoma writers um, that they just like shot down in North Texas. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. Like it's uh, I mean, I, I will describe it a little bit. I mean, it's set in the 50s in a small town in New Mexico and two characters hear a mysterious radio signal. And like I heard that premise and I was like, "Uh, I mean, I guess we'll see because it's, you know, everybody wants to be Amblin-esque and everybody wants to be Spielberg-esque. But like from the get go, the way the film is constructed, I thought was really unique. Um, And the dialogue, there's an opening like 20 minutes or so where you're not even getting to the radio transmission. It's just two characters talking in super long takes in a way that like recalled like screwball comedies of like the forties and fifties to me. Uh, and also like the long takes, cause there were a lot of long takes back then just because they weren't really moving the camera that often uh, that I just found super compelling and different. It wasn't, you know, lens flares and it doesn't open with like a massive explosion or, you know, aliens everywhere. It's very uh, grounded, I would say. And the way that the story unfolds, I found very compelling. Like, uh, I watched it with my fiance and we were just kind of like, like instinctively like leaning into the screen because we wanted because there are these long monologues where people are telling these stories that they've heard um, that I just found super fascinating and, and engrossing and interesting, which I thought was just a different way to tell that kind of story because I was expecting like, you know, Super 8 Part 2, but it's really not that. And I think the the filmmaking, the strength of the filmmaking, I think, is also really um, uh, noteworthy. Um, it's got this this different cinematography that gives it a, a texture. It's kind of like out of time. Um, I don't know. I was a really huge fan of it. I, I found it very fun and very exciting and compelling and didn't find myself like reaching for my phone or anything. I was just really drawn into the dialogue between these characters, even when they're talking about, you know, uh, like a high school basketball game. Matt, yeah, tell I mean, me why you hated it. Oh, I, I, first of all, I didn't hate it. <laughs> let's, let's be clear. Because I think Andrew Patterson's direction is very strong. And I like the fact that it's strong direction without being flashy. There's not a film that's like, oh, my God, how did he get that shot? You know, yeah. it's a film that's very much about confidence and control and really building attention visually and, and knowing how to do that without drawing attention and being like, this is how I did it. Or like, sort of like, hey, look at this clever framing. Like, it's it, it's very conscious of what's the best way to tell the story. I just feel that the story itself is pretty thin. Like, I think the mystery hooks you from the beginning. And, like, the way the characters are bouncing off each other is, like, good dialogue. But I don't feel it never... It doesn't, I feel, do the nuts and bolts storytelling that I would kind of expect from a fairly traditional narrative that this one is expecting. If the film were more, like, avant-garde or more or weirder than it is, I would be kind of okay letting that go. But... It's a film where, like, the stakes, I don't feel, are ever really established beyond we have to figure out what the signal is. But even beyond that, you never really feel what it, what does that mean? How will that affect our two protagonists? How will that change their lives? What does it mean to them? Why do they want this? What are their wants versus what are their needs? And I feel like it doesn't really hit those beats that it needs to. And so when you're left with this kind of these long monologues, which are fine for what they are, but more often than not, it feels like a story that would might be better suited to like a radio play than a film. And I think it's only because Patterson's direction is so strong that he's able to, by sheer force of will, I think, make it into a cinematic experience that I think the story kind of pushes against. It does feel kind of play-esque. And I'm only just now realizing, does it play out entirely in real time? Uh, yeah. 
and like I think that's another strength of the filmmaking that it doesn't feel like you're just like sitting there listening to someone talk. Um, I don't know. I got a little bit more out of it than you did, but I I mean I understand there were there are some constraints in that like it is inherently focused on the mystery at hand and the, the characters are somewhat a little thin um, in that regard. Um, but I do feel like you know it's ultimately the story of two people who feel like outsiders in one way or another. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I I see your point. Um, I disagree, and you suck. And I had a lot of fun with it. And look, I want to make clear to our listeners uh, and our viewers on YouTube, I am in the minority on this one. A lot of people, <laughs> a lot of people on the Collider staff watched The Bastard Night this weekend and fucking loved it. So I am in the minority. Ignore me and watch The Bastard Night. It's a lot of fun. Um, okay, uh, let's move on to recently watched. Uh, Haley, what have you seen lately? Well, I had a very busy weekend of doing nothing, which meant I got to watch a lot. <laughs> um, I finally scratched The Outsider off my shameless, the HBO series, and have to confess, I just thought it was pretty good. Thought the first few episodes were killer, and then it kind of lost me for a while. But what I did watch that I super duper loved was uh, Something Wild, Jonathan Demme's movie, which I somehow had never seen. Um, it is about a sort of stuffy type businessman who meets this real firecracker young lady and they spark up a, a very um, sexual relationship, but also a, a relationship built around sort of pushing each other's boundaries and you know, taking him on to a little bit more wild course and maybe uh, helping her find a little bit more stability in her life. And it's just very charming and not as cliche as that all sounds. Uh, it has a phenomenal soundtrack that I will like immediately added to my Spotify playlist. Um, it, it's just really solid. Uh, obviously, it's Jonathan Demi, so you're going to find these like moments of human tenderness in it that don't seem like they should even be in a movie because they're so quiet and understated and not necessarily relevant to the plot. Uh, there's a, a part where the guy is sleeping in his car. He just falls asleep and this young girl comes up to him just to check if he's okay. It's like a five second interaction has nothing to do with the plot. But it touched me so much. I teared up a little bit. It was just so kind and lovely out of nowhere in this film. And that's what I really value in his filmmaking is this, like, the way he infuses these tiny moments of humanity into the bigger story. I just thought it was really beautiful and fun and weird and uh, really don't know how I missed it all these years. So definitely check I, it out. I haven't seen it either. So I haven't either. It's on HBO Max. HBO Max. Yeah. <laughs> I think that exists. <laughs> uh, yeah. I think one of, like, Demi understands humans in a way that few other filmmakers have. Like, I remember at TIFF... I went to see the Justin Timberlake concert documentary on an in like in an IMAX theater in like a half full, like a press screening at like three in the afternoon and just like feeling emotionally overwhelmed with like the way that Demi had like directed this, like feeling the humanity of like the performers and the um, like the band and the way that this was like a family. And I was like, this is just like the sync dude singing songs, but like it shouldn't be this emotional, but I, and you thinking about stuff like Philadelphia and everything, like I think everyone tries to capture those shots where the characters are looking right into camera, but I don't think they understand why Demi was doing that. Right. And to the point about The Outsider, so I watched that weekly and I think it benefited from that because it did it feel like some episodes were like repeating or like dragging oh stuff out? Oh my God, yeah. yes. It was <laughs> okay. like the middle four. I was just like, I know. Yeah. <laughs> You're hunting so felt, a weird thing. Yeah, it felt that way week to week. So I can only imagine binging it how I felt. Um, but I was super struck by Bateman's direction in those first two episodes. Yes, agree. I and I, I great. think that's the strongest thing is like it sets a visual um, template and such a unique tone for the series. I don't know if it was you, Adam. Somebody described it to me as if it was like true detective, but actually supernatural. Yeah, and that was uh, me. That feels very on point, and but but uh, the reason I bring that up is because it is, uh, it does feel kin to True Detective, but it has its own visual style too that he really establishes in those first episodes. I was very impressed by that. Yeah, I think it's the best thing he's directed so far. Yeah. Now, what have you what have you seen lately? 
Uh, so I finally finished the FX on Hulu miniseries Mrs. America over the weekend, which wrapped up its finale. It was last Wednesday. Um, and like uh, I've been watching this and, and we've been enjoying it week to week. And it's, uh, you know, it's ostensibly about Phyllis Schlafly, but more about like the feminist movement of the 1970s and the the fight to ratify the ERA. Um and like I had seen reviewers say, like you know, the first few episodes are okay, and I thought it was pretty good. And then I had seen people say you really need to get back on it and catch up. And um, I would agree that I think it's so. I think it reveals itself as something that it, at the beginning, like each episode is centered around like a different character, so Phyllis Schlafly or Bella Abzug um, uh, or Gloria Steinem, and uh, you know that device works to kind of lay the groundwork. I think, but. I think the show really did a great job of kind of honing in on not only like the many different facets of feminism and and the different like shortcomings of feminism, because it was, you know, within the feminist movement, it was showing dissent. So, you know, some people are better on gay rights than others in in the feminist movement. So, you know, like in a world in which they're fighting for equality, it's learning that no one is equal. And so even in within these groups, there are rungs and structures um, that are flawed. And even within Phyllis Schlafly and the anti-ERA movement, like there are feminists that don't call themselves feminists, but like they are working women who are trying to exceed, you know, what their husbands are doing, whether they want to admit it or not. Um, and I thought that was really fascinating. And the cast, I mean, it's Kate Blanchett, Sarah Paulson, Rose Byrne, uh, Margot Martindale as Bella Abzug and is phenomenal in it. Um, and Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck directed, I think, four of the nine episodes. Um, and uh, what's her name? The filmmaker who did Zola, that Sundance movie, directs one of the episodes that's really good. Um, but I don't know. I was really impressed by I mean, obviously, like, you know, no miniseries can fully capture like what feminism is or that entire movement. But I did think it was interesting and in that it was kind of challenging. Like, it's not painting this pretty picture of like everyone who was pro ERA was perfect and everyone who was anti ERA was evil. Um, it's kind of challenging the complexities within that movement. And the shifts and, you know, ultimately no matter how much progress there is still inequality and it still exists and it still persists and will always persist. Um, very unfortunately. So on that upper note, <laughs> uh, yeah, I thought it was a, it was a really fascinating miniseries, and, uh, I'm curious to see kind of like how it does at the Emmys and see if that raises its profile, but definitely felt like something that belonged on FX. I kind of, this FX on Hulu thing has kind of thrown me for a loop because I'm like, is this an F? Oh, yeah, it's an FX series because it feels like an FX series. It doesn't necessarily feel like a Hulu series. So. Yeah, it's, it's one I've been meaning to watch. I'm just right now we're sort of making our way through the great, which is yeah. great. <laughs> that is also very good. And very I, surprising. I watched the first four episodes of Mrs. America back at TCA and I did kind of drop off of picking back up on it so it's interesting to hear that it's worth returning to i thought it was very thoughtful but yeah. for my taste it was perhaps a bit too pensive of a drama like yeah. it, it's a slow thinky i you know i don't really do straight up dramas i like aliens <laughs> and murderers and stuff but I, i'll give it another shot uh hearing that just it is i think a very vital conversation to have and hard to have and they they found a way to make you empathize with almost every player that was it's very tricky to pull off. It helps uh, when you have Kate Blanchett. But yeah. yes, yeah, even Melanie Linsky is playing this like really reprehensible character, and you're like, but it's Melanie Linsky, and yeah. she's delightful. <laughs> so she's great. Yeah, the cast is incredible. Like James Marsden is just like doing a bit part, and is like happy to be here. And, like John <laughs> Slattery, it's a really good cast. Yeah, I gotta watch that one. Um, for me, I, I rewatched uh, Akira Kurosawa's Ikaru this weekend, and um, you know, I had <laughs> so my I, my wife hadn't seen any Akira Kurosawa films, and I really wanted to return to Ikaru. Um, the title Ikaru means to live, and so the plot of the film is that this guy is this bureaucrat who learns that he has stomach cancer and he has about six months to live, and up until that point, he hasn't really lived at all. He goes about his day stamping forms and pushing people through the bureaucratic machine, which involves saying, hey, our street is flooded with sewage, please do something. And then you get sent to public works, who says, no, you get sent to parks, who gets sent, you get sent to sanitation, who gets sent to, you know, and so you don't solve anything, you just, things stay broken. But when he learns he has this terminal illness, he starts wondering, what does it mean to live? 
what does it mean to live? And the film has this great sort of two act structure where the first half is him sort of wrestling with this diagnosis. And then the second half is people talking about his legacy. And I will say, if I were going to start someone with Akira Kurosawa, I probably wouldn't start them with Ikaru, even though I think it's a great film and really moving. Uh, it's a great drama, but it is very deliberately paced. Whereas I would feel like if I wanted to get someone into, into Kurosawa films, I'd be like, watch Seven Samurai, which is like an action movie, or watch uh, High and Low, which is like a crime thriller. Like those are probably more accessible, but Ikaru, which is on HBO now, you can watch it now, <laughs> or HBO Max, sorry. Uh, uh, too many HBOs. Um, I would say like it's a really, I mean, I think it's a very moving film and I really like the conclusions that it comes to. Uh, but I would also say, like, for, if you're someone like Kurosawa, fourth film from him, rather than this is where you should start. So that that's what I watched. <laughs> I watched is a bunch it, of movies. Is it better or worse than Funny People? Uh, it oh. is better. <laughs> <laughs> I've, but, I've been watching all of Apatow's movies, <laughs> so I have that fresh in mind, and I'm just like, what is this? <laughs> Uh, we'll get to that. We'll, we'll do a we'll, we'll do a whole Apatow episode when King of Staten Island comes. Yeah, out. I'll be here. I, I've seen King of Staten Island. I can't say anything about it right now, but I'll be interested to hear what you think about it. I have also seen King of Staten Island. Ooh. Ooh. Wow! Thanks for <laughs> making me feel terrible, guys. I, I didn't get sent the link. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, if you want to keep up with this podcast, oh, before I get to that, so we held a vote on saying what should be next week's topic, and these are all films that are on Netflix, and it wasn't even close. The winner uh, by a mile was V for Vendetta, which got fifty-six uh, percent of the vote. I wow. wonder if uh, Guy Fox has any relevance right now. Yeah, I think people are kind of thinking about uh, you know, government should be afraid of their people. Ooh. My super emo friends painting. Nice. I believe that should be uh, Warner Media now. AT and T. Just keep My going up. My is out of date. <laughs> I have only seen that movie once, so I'm excited to revisit it. Yeah. So that's what we'll be talking about on next week's episode. V for Vendetta. It's on Netflix right now, so catch up with that one. Okay. If you want to keep up with this podcast, you should follow us on Twitter. Uh, Haley, where can we find you on Twitter? Uh, you can find me at Haley Fouch on Twitter. You can find me at Haystack McGroovy on Instagram. And you also have a great podcast, The Witching Hour. That people hey, I do. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, that's on Fridays. We talk about horror movies. And, and uh, yeah, I ramble like this once a week. It's the best thing ever. You'll love it. Uh, and Adam, where can we find you on Twitter? At Adam Chitwood. And you can find me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you next week. Everyone needs more vacation, right? The new United Gateway card knows how to take you away with great travel rewards and no annual fee, ever. The wait for vacation is over. Tap now or visit unitedgatewaycard.com to apply. Did you know you could shop around for prescription prices? With GoodRx, you can find free coupons at over 70,000 pharmacies and save up to 80%. It's that easy. But don't just take my word for it. Dr. Adam says, I've been telling all my patients about GoodRx. Jacqueline says, my medication was $65 without insurance, but I paid $25. Aubriana says, you don't have to pay full price to live your best life. Couldn't have said it better myself. GoodRx is 100% free. Download the GoodRx app today and start saving. GoodRx is not insurance.